This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is The Common Wind, Afro-American Currents in the Age of the Haitian Revolution by Julius S. Scott, with a foreword by Marcus Redeker. The Common Wind is a gripping and colorful account of the intercontinental networks that tied together the free and enslaved masses of the New World. Having delved deep into the gray obscurity of official 18th century records in Spanish, English, and French, Julius Scott has written a powerful history from below. Scott follows the spread of rumors of emancipation and the people behind them, bringing to life the protagonists in the slave revolution. Though the common wind is credited with having, quote, opened up the black Atlantic with a rigor and a commitment to the power of written words, the manuscript remained unpublished for 32 years. Now, after receiving wide acclaim from leading historians of slavery in the New World, it has been published by Verso for the first time, with a foreword by the academic and author Marcus Redeker. The Common Wind, Afro-American Currents in the Age of the Haitian Revolution, by Julius S. Scott, with a foreword by Marcus Redeker. Out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Typically, we think about migration as immigration, people crossing international borders from one nation state to another. And for the past half century in the United States, we have tended to think about that immigration in a binary way, legal immigration versus illegal immigration. But to understand the origins of the immigration politics in general and the criminalization of Mexican immigrants in particular that have become the core of the Trump presidency and of conservatism as a whole, we must explode these categories, identify their origins, and analyze the history that preceded them. Nativist arguments are often made by reference to people's own forebearers, quote, coming the right way. But for much of American history, coming the right way simply meant showing up as a white person. From the colonial period through the early 1920s, immigration was basically open for white people. White people who were needed to settle an expanding nation by holding dispossessed native land, and to labor in the industrial armies of an ascendant capitalist empire. Indeed, for much of that history, the major dividing line wasn't between native-born citizens and immigrants at all, but rather between settlers and colonized populations. Subjugated peoples who were either excluded and expelled, or subjugated as low-caste workers consigned to the hardest and most degraded labor and denied basic political rights. And so to understand Trump and his border crisis, we need to rethink American history using different terms and categories than the ones that the mainstream immigration debate provides us with. We must look at the politics around international immigration as part of a broader set of policies and ideologies governing the movement of people based on where they were fixed by American capitalism's racialized labor caste system and imperial designs. In other words, 
immigration can't be understood apart from policies and ideologies that sought, amongst other things, to provisionally synthesize the contradictory realities of a racist and brutally exploitative political economic order that constantly required the presence of non-whites. There's a lot more to discuss, but I'll save that for the interview, which is with Aziz Rana, an all-star returning dig guest and the author of The Two Faces of American Freedom. Before we get rolling, you know what time it is. It is time for me to charm you into supporting this podcast at patreon.com slash the dig. Because I would quite literally have to find something else to do for a living if it was not for support from dig listeners like you at patreon.com. For $5 a month, I'll send you our newsletter. For $10, you get a copy of either Assad Hater's Mistaken Identity or Jacobin's ABCs of Socialism. For $20 or more, I'll send you a load of left-wing books. Please, if you haven't already, contribute what you can to support this podcast at patreon.com slash the dig. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Okay, here's Aziz Rana, a professor of law at Cornell Law School and the author of the book, The Two Faces of American Freedom and the forthcoming book, Rise of the Constitution. His work focuses on how shifting notions of race, citizenship, and empire have shaped legal and political identity since the American founding. Aziz Rana, returning champion, welcome back to The Dig. Thanks for having me back. Uh, Really looking forward to this. The place I think we need to start a discussion of American immigration politics is within a framework that you write a lot about, which is that of colonial settlement and settler colonialism. This country has, for most of its history, been a project of demographic engineering. We can look back from the moment of British colonization through the first naturalization law passed shortly after the revolution, through a system of slavery that made forced African migrants into unfree laborers through the settlement of the West, which was methodically undertaken to ensure overwhelming white majorities through Chinese and Asian exclusion, stretching from the 1880s through the first half of the 20th century. And through 1965, when a law was finally passed that ended a system that since the 20s had nakedly restricted immigration from outside of Northern and Western Europe. And Those are just some of the explicitly racist policies. So my question is, to frame this interview, if you could explain the ideological and political economic role of white settlement in the formation of the U.S. as a country and how that should inform the way we think about immigration politics. As a way of getting into the question that you asked, I think it'd be really useful to just sort of lay out how most people tend to think about immigration politics and the way that it's presented in the news or in regular conversation. The idea is that immigration is really just a question of the border. It's like 
people appear. They seem to appear magically at, at the border, and they want to have access to the country because of various kinds of economic needs, and then the country has to make decisions about whether or not to allow people in, um, including based on judgments about like threat or safety. And then this issue about the border, which is you know, something that is viewed as like its own like separate domain, that it just happens, it seems to happen out of like thin air, is also distinguished from the question about like, well, what rights should be afforded to people that are non-citizens? And the thought there is that, well, you know, states are organized just, you know, seemingly naturally on a distinction between citizens and non-citizens. Citizens are part of a democratic community. They get various kinds of protections and rights. And those, those protections and rights are not appropriately provided to non-citizens. And that whole framing I think really misses like the fundamental impulse behind American migration policy really from the very earliest days of North American colonization, so even before independence. And that's that immigration is part of a much more complicated story of population control and population management and the ways in which both control and management were really meant to facilitate settlement out west and the expansion of a very particular vision of national identity. And so it's closely tied to domestic colonization, to the way that the U.S. is located in global structures of empire, and also to the types of economic organization, particularly the rise of modern industrial capitalism that went hand in hand with these projects of settlement. And so if you just extract immigration policy from that and just read it as a story of the border that's not bound to these much thicker, deeper relationships, then you're essentially missing the stakes of the conversation today. I want to ask a theoretical question before we get into a lot of historical specifics, which is, do we need to stop thinking about immigration politics narrowly as such and instead conceptualize of immigration as a legal and ideological subset of a population politics. I don't know if that's the right term, but something along those lines governing race in place that functions by creating castes and ideologies that legitimate and synthesize various capitalist modes of accumulation on the one hand with particular nation state projects on the other. Do you think that this is the sort of framework we need to use or would you put it another way? It's really important to think of what we currently talk about as immigration as really a story of the demographic management of populations. Who counts as an internal member? What rights are accorded to those that are insiders? And then what kind of treatments face to those that are viewed as unfit, quote unquote, in various ways, either to remain or that find themselves facing various kinds of subordinated status. This means that in a sense, like some of um, the best comparisons or, or like continuities that we would see in terms of thinking about like what we today refer to as an immigration policy would be with the treatment of native peoples in the 19th century, the treatment of enslaved African persons, um, the structure of policy towards uh, Mexicans that didn't migrate to the U.S. but that found themselves now as part of like the U.S state because of the outcomes of like the Mexican-American War. Um, and that these continuities tell us actually a lot more about um, the shape of um, U.S. practices towards 
different kinds of uh, different populations and movement than just a kind of um, simple focus on what's happening at the border and what kinds of quote unquote protections are needed there. One last theoretical point before we move on to the history. It seems one key thing that we need to do to accomplish this more comprehensive framework within which immigration is a subset or the way certain types of population politics appear to us because of their political expression, it seems like one thing we need to do is to move beyond methodological nationalism that takes the boundaries of the nation state as a given and thus treats international migration as this wholly distinct thing, both from domestic migration and more generally from the politics of race and place. Absolutely. So that methodological nationalism is built on a particular kind of post-World War II order at the international level for thinking about like the nation states, which is the world is a product of formally equal states that enjoy various kinds of international guarantees and rights and that provide a set of protections to their own citizens. And to the extent that their citizens are in other states, those are essentially people that are you know, more or less out of place um, and have differential kinds of uh, relationships with the states that they're, they're visiting or trying to, to migrate to. The problem with that way of thinking about the world is sort of like twofold. One is that it f- fundamentally obscures the way in which like the formal equality of these nation states at the international level is belied by systematic forms of economic and political inequality. So being a citizen in the United States means something that's like fundamentally different than being a citizen in Kenya, where my father's family's from. And that has to do with the nature of the global economic and political order writ large. And in particular, it has to do with the long afterlife of the imperial order that preceded our present, you know, post-45 structure, which is the extent to which histories of colonization and empire shape the terms of, of membership. And it also obscures the way in which that the U.S. isn't just like any other state. The U.S. isn't, you know, even, quote unquote, like the, the first nation among, among equals, like that since 45, it's been the dominant global power that we live in an era that's best defined as an era of Pax Americana. Um, it might be retreating in various ways, but it shaped the, shapes the terms of like this larger economic order. And it means that just thinking of each state as equal and that citizens from one state somehow inexplicably attempting to enter um, other states, you know, basically ignores the reasons for circulation that shape this global order. And we can get into like some of the specifics about American foreign policy in particular, but I think at a theoretical level, the point is to essentially explode the idea that these are all just equal states and instead to recognize the extent to which what we have is, um, you know, a Uh, an order that emerges out of the collapse of the old empires and that's shaped by the dominant global position of the U.S. and that imposes very clear structural inequalities that determine um, how movement operates. And in particular, allows the free flow of capital from the global north and the U.S. especially into the global south and that inhibits or constrains the free flow of labor in response. Okay, we've laid a pretty solid theoretical foundation. I think let's turn back to some of the history. Starting after the the revolution, the American project required westward conquest, which in turn required both native removal and new settlers to ensure 
a European majority on the land. The The flip side of that expansion and conquest was that it provided an escape valve from Eastern inequality, which gave whites the settler promise of free labor tied into this measure of internal equality. And I think it's important to emphasize that white settlers weren't just allowed in, they were recruited. And white immigrants in the 19th century were even widely allowed to vote before they had naturalized. They were in essence deemed Americans overnight because they were white settlers, which was definitionally what an American was. Can you explain how this division between settlers and colonized people, rather than one between natives and immigrants, dominated the United States, and what role it played in the country's development? You know, this is this covers a bit of ground from stuff that we've discussed in previous conversations. So my apologies to listeners if this sounds a, a touch familiar. But the best way to think of the early American project, and really this is from the 17th century through the, the early 20th century, is as a, a sustained experiment in what I call settler empire. Um, and that was this experiment was organized around a variety of like fairly clear principles. So you had Anglo colonists that came to North America and they carried with them a radicalized version of the Republican tradition. In other words, they understood free political and economic relationships as built around um, having control over one's productive life. So owning land, having a shop of one's own, and having that tied to direct political participation. So freedom as self-rule is something that was thick. Um, but they also saw that the possibility of being able to, to have this kind of project is requiring a second feature, which is territorial expansion. There needed to be enough land that was broadly available to those that were um, insider settlers to be able to actually enjoy something like free self-rule. And then that led to two other sort of key elements. The third was that there was also an understanding that not all forms of work are free. Like societies necessarily, and especially agricultural societies, require like degraded or hard forms of labor that are not compatible with the position of economic independence. And the way that settlers solved this problem starting really in the, the mid-17th century was through um, African slavery. So the idea was that you have communities that are forced or compelled to engage in the most subordinated forms of work, and then you justify um, that subordination precisely in racial and to a lesser extent religious terms as well. And then this led to a fourth point, which was really key to the project of, of American um, settlerism and territorial settlement, which was that um, pretty soon in the 17th century, English state policies start to shift. So initially, the the crown is is interested actually in sending people to the colonies because they're worried about overpopulation, various kinds of economic and political threats. But by the time we get to the second half of the 17th century, that England actually wants to have its own like working class stay to be able to build like the industrial economy there. And so you have settlers in North America that have a significant demographic need. And the demographic need is that you need to be able to actually populate new territory that you're taking over in order for the project to be able to sustain itself. And so what emerges and what you see really through the 19th century is a surprisingly open policy to foreigners coming from abroad, but in particular to foreigners that are deemed um, 
co-ethnics sharing a similar like cultural and ethical project and territorial expansion. And so initially this is Protestants. Um, so you have like French Huguenots or other kinds of Protestants from, um, from especially like Western Europe. But over time, it becomes a larger category of European or white. And we can talk a little bit about what that means. Uh, and then there are a series of policies that end up getting implemented to induce both migration from abroad and also westward settlement. And you can, you know, so these are some that you've already mentioned. Um, you have the provision of easy naturalization processes during the colonial period. Um, you have the provision of non-citizen voting, um, so voting that's pegged to residency during the colonial period, and these things end up carrying over after independence. So the first naturalization laws, 1802, say that for, quote-unquote, free white men, you can naturalize as a U.S. citizen after five years, as long as three years before the naturalization you assert your intent to naturalize. And then you have a variety of different states and territories that use that as a basis for providing European non-citizens with voting rights, where they say that if you assert your intent to naturalize, whether or not you ever actually naturalize as a U.S. citizen, that you can enjoy voting rights. And then that goes hand in hand with access to Western land grants. Um, and essentially the conditions, both economic and political, of enjoying something like free Republican citizenship. And it also, you know, has all sorts of kind of surprising um, elements that we might not initially think of. Like, for example, some of the very first states and territories that provide for voting rights for women uh, are states and territories in the West in the late 19th century. And the reason is because if you're committed to a project of demographic settlement, then you actually need to have families. And this becomes very much a, a politics of not just population control and management, but re, you know reproductive management. And so you're providing voting rights to women to induce white women to move to Western territories and land to be able to facilitate a, a politics of settlement. And the thing that ties all of this together for what amounts to like a you know, a three-century period, is what you noted in the beginning. We tend to think of politics as organized between a distinction between citizen and alien, or during the monarchical period, between like the subject of a monarchy and like an, an alien. And instead, what defined the, like the long durée of American politics was a distinction between settler and non-settler. And this is really significant because if you take, you know, most of the, the monarchies on the continent um, during the same era, they had really restricted, restrictive, excuse me, like inheritance rights, um, land ownership rights for non-citizens based on the thought that, well, wait a second, you don't want non-citizens to be able to inherit or to, to own land in your own territory because that would be like a foreign potentate since they're essentially the subject of a foreign king having control within your own country. So it's, it's like a stalking Trojan horse. But in the U.S., the thought is precisely the opposite, which is, no, you actually want European migrants to come because they're participating in what amounts to a racially defined project of settlement and control. And indeed, what's way more important than citizenship status is whether or not the particular individual is ethically part of the project. And you can really see this play out in terms of 
the variety of treatment that's instead subject to those that are viewed as on the outside, to like the, the non-settlers. Such as we see with, with Indian removal and the debates over slavery show the, the way that people who are geographically inside are still very much treated as, as outsiders in terms of the dominant cast of the settler project. And yeah, I was just going to say, and just a note about this. So you have, so by the time we get to, let's say, the mid or late 19th century, we could be talking. You know, we'll talk about I think the the status of um, the the Chinese in a bit. But if you just look at enslaved African Americans as well as non-slave African Americans, um, Mexican Americans, and Native peoples, so these are all groups with long and very rich histories on the land. So, and yet in, in distinct ways, they find themselves subject to what amounts to an extreme form of discretionary power that's, um, you know, that is a product of a, a kind of an old imperial royal prerogative um, that is the form of essentially like uh, unlimited course of authority that those on the outside face and that applies in different ways. So you have um, enslaved persons that essentially are denied any meaningful rights. Um, you have non-slave African Americans whose, whose movement is very closely controlled. So if you're a non-slave African American and you're not a resident already in a southern slave state, you weren't allowed entrance into the southern slave states. Non-slave African Americans weren't allowed entrance um, into various western territories, so were explicitly excluded from the conditions of economic independence and incorporation through these land grants that European migrants who had just arrived, so have no connection um, to the land, um, immediately enjoy. And then you can say a similar thing about Mexicans after the Mexican-American War, where the Mexican-American War ends with a treaty that provides all Mexicans that are now on U.S. territory um, with citizenship status, but the states, in California in particular, like quickly move in to say that, well, unless you are white, if you're, a, uh, if you're Mexican but not of white ancestry, then you don't have voting rights. And Native peoples face, you know, um, their own distinct but kind of parallel structures of control built around the, the reservation system and then also um, systematic denials of like voting rights and various other kinds of protections to, for those that are even formally included as citizens. And a, a, quick, inter, a quick interjection, Mexican-Americans, even though they're technically deemed white by the Treaty of Guadalupe, are subjected to Jim Crow-style segregation, brutal state terrorism in Texas, and as you mentioned, land dispossession. Exactly. And the thing that's really key is that the criteria of being a formal citizen is largely irrelevant to the rights that you actually end up enjoying. African Americans, at least at the state level, and we'll spend some time talking about Dred Scott and what Dred Scott says about African American federal citizenship, but at the state level, African Americans that are not enslaved, formal citizens... Um, Mexican-Americans, formal citizens, Native peoples, oftentimes through congressional naturalization, formal citizens, and yet face systematic rights denials because what's actually more important is whether or not you're seen as somebody that is a participant in the settler project. And that means that a European in Europe is in fact more of a, an American if they're the kind of person that you want to induce to come and settle than a person that's um, that 
that is a formal citizen here. And it also means that the way that these policies operate is that they operate through the inducement of bringing particular populations to the continent and then essentially balancing between two different kinds of impulses about non-settler groups that are really colonized subjects here. And one impulse is removal. And you see that through things like the Trail of Tears and, you know, Jackson's policies. And another impulse is not removal, but kind of like sustained subordination and subordination to provide something like a pliable labor supply. And you see that especially, for example, with um, enslaved African labor. But in both cases, managing who stays, who remains, and under what conditions is like the guiding framework that that sort of constructs all of this. I want to make clear that this isn't just a matter of a historical injustice in the 19th century that has passed. If we want to take seriously the idea that the politics of international immigration on the one hand and internal migration on the other are interconnected parts of something bigger, and we want to look at the how decisive the politics of black migration have been, we can start with black movement being controlled not only by slavery in the South, but also fugitive slave acts, and by multiple non-slave states barring the very entry of black people entirely. And Mm -hmm. then, as you referred to the Supreme Court's Dred Scott decision denying black citizenship, and then the, the threat of black migration out of the South overwhelmingly shapes the debate over abolition when colonization of slaves to Africa or elsewhere was widely held to be the only way that slavery could be ended. And then it doesn't end there. The entirety of American history that follows through the present, arguably, in terms of the politics of the black freedom struggle and of the Great Migration and the system of metropolitan segregation that was erected in response to the Great Migration and black freedom struggle, these are the key events of American history up to now. One way of thinking about the past, to the extent that people, you know, are willing to like recognize this particular kind of like settler history, is to essentially divide the past between an era that existed, and then there's a break, and instead what we have emerge in the 20th century is something like civic nationalism built on um, free and equal principles that undergird uh, the market and liberal democratic politics, and so it's essentially like a move from an episode um, that might have previously occurred to a completely different political order. And I think the key point is that, you know, rather than there being a break between a settler and, let's say, a civic national, settler past and a civic national present, that these two are really, like, deeply interconnected and they fold into one another. Throughout this whole period from the 17th century to the present, the kind of impulses that shape the basic terms of the American Settler Project persist. They persist in novel ways, but they nonetheless have really significant effects for the ongoing policy, notions of national identity, and the types of debates that we see at the present. So like one thing that I'll say just about like the the black migration that you noted that highlights these continuities. So Chris, uh, Chris Muller is a great um, sociologist that does stuff on mass incarceration, he notes that along with metropolitan segregation, the movement of African Americans north is also in like the period basically from like the 20s to the 40s, the time that in northern prisons, you start seeing 
really like the disproportionate imprisonment of African Americans. It's one of the significant prehistories of the modern kind of uh, mass incarceration story. And it's for comparable reasons, which is you have a, a new black population and a black population that's understood by like white white elites in particular communities as like a threat to their notions of like identity and membership. And um, incarceration becomes a tool of um, managing what amounts to the black body. That's a story that we would never think of as like a quote unquote immigration story. But if you like explode the focus on the border and you think of this as like, well, how is it that different populations in movement end up being controlled and what shapes those forms of movement, then you can see, well, actually, in lots of interesting ways, what we think of as, as like the story of mass incarceration or the new Jim Crow have like direct connections um, to how uh, a cohesive, you know, state project is conceiving of, um, of who counts and who doesn't. Thinking about nativism more broadly as this threat posed by people outside of the dominant caste. And you write that what settlers viewed as a central danger was that the government would treat settler society insiders in the brutal and subjugating manner that was ostensibly reserved for outsiders, which goes some way towards explaining the Declaration of Independence's condemnation of King George for having, quote, excited domestic insurrections amongst us and endeavored to bring on the inhabitants of our frontiers, the merciless Indian savages. Yeah, the, the part of the declaration that we, uh, we, tend not to, we tend not to talk about. <laughs> Though it's published on the back of the New York Times every July 4th. Um, and, and settlers, you, you write, contended that, that Britain had relegated them to what they dis- consistently described as a condition of slavery. What does it reveal that white Americans have so consistently looked to subordinated people as a metaphor through which to interpret their own fears of their own political economic subjugation. The heart of 17th century um, settler ideology and, and legal frameworks was a division between, again, like settlers and non-settlers. And the thought is that for those that are included as settlers, the benefit is supposed to be this really rich account of freedom as self-rule. And that means that the way that political life is meant to be organized is through an intricate system of checks and balances. Like all of the stuff that we tend to talk about, for example, when we talk about, you know, constitutional liberty and protections. But the thought is that for those that are on the outside, that, you know, it is appropriate to exercise what I in the book call an imperial prerogative because of its continuities with discretionary royal power to shape both the the kind of different differential terms of subjectship that those communities face, but also to just mete out various forms of violence and coercion from removal um, to, you know, imprisonment, you name it. The worry that you see articulated during the revolutionary period that becomes like a kind of continuous refrain of American politics is that it's the English empire that's treating its rightful subjects so Anglo colonists, as if they're colonized, dependent, um, you know, dependent subjects, as if they're non-settlers, that they're using that royal prerogative in ways that are inappropriate and ignoring the kinds of checks and limitations that are supposed supposed to apply 
to insiders. Um, and one of the ways that they're doing this is this is the, the reference to enslaved persons and to Native Americans in the Declaration of Independence is by potentially challenging in limited ways whether or not um, you will have additional rights or protections to those that are enslaved, um, you know, treating Native populations potentially as um, also English subjects and so attempting to balance um, the interests between settlers and Native populations. I I don't want to suggest that um, that like the British Empire um, is behaving in ways that we should like you know applaud. So this is an empire that's dealing with lots of different complicated population um, centers and is attempting to essentially maintain order through um, a project of balance. Um, but that that doesn't mean that it's in any way committed to like the rights protection of um, subordinated groups. But that's like a worry that motivates the revolution. And it's a worry that persists in the U.S. And it it persists in the U.S., um, you know, in a sense, because there's, there's essentially like two ways that Republican freedom can be made broadly accessible. Like one way is, you know, over time as a country becomes more industrialized by like actually transforming like the economic institutions of the place, um, ensuring that those economic institutions uh, are actually being controlled by like the bulk of the people on the ground. Um, and another way is through the project of Expansion West, um, which is a constant sort of like safety valve for the kinds of internal white class tensions that emerge. The American story is by and large like the systematic failure to use um, like energetic government power to control new forms of like economic hierarchy that emerge. And because expansion West um, and what you can think of as various forms of native expropriation, um, a strong color line between whites and African Americans, all of these are the ways that end up sustaining what you can imagine as like white economic populism, because these predominate, um, then it becomes increasingly, you know, clear to like more and more white citizens that, um, you know, if they find their own rights being infringed, what that actually looks like in practice is being treated like the types of communities that are meant to serve the state rather than the state's meant to actually aid or enhance. And those arguments just come up over and over and over again. You can look at Southern Massive Resistance Integration, which displaces the reality of of Southern white despotism over Southern black people as some sort of federal tyranny or tax revolts in the 1970s sparked by what were seen as transfers of wealth from the white middle class to subordinate groups and opposition to school and housing integration, which was seen as, you know, this judicial imposition on the prerogatives of white middle class people, Nixon's silent majority, the Reagan revolution, the Tea Party, quite explicitly a tax revolt. And now with Trump's maximalist white national decline grievance politics and nativism, I think is always at the central of this ideology because it posits the idea that the demos, the very underpinning of the democratic project itself is being invaded. And you look at the rhetoric around 
Mexican criminality and demands for citizenship, echoing the Declaration of Independence's description of native violence. You know, what I'd say that's that's sort of connected to this long story is that one of the things that happens pretty early on in the New, New Republic is that energetic government action, government power, especially energetic government power from the federal government, um, is, you know, is viewed as an assault on the kind of local prerogatives of communities on the ground. And it's also viewed as like the kind of thing that's only supposed to be applied to, um, to those that are, that are outsiders. And that a lot of how um, notions of like freedom of self-rule end up playing out um, is, you know, is through claims about policing having this imperial prerogative that's being asserted by the federal government apply um, toward local groups. And so it could be, you know, everything from like it's the fed, it's that it's that like federal government's prerogative that's limiting settler slaveholding rights out in the territories that somebody like Tawny is so upset about during Dred Scott. But you can see it play out continuously, and it slowly also then becomes a kind of justification both for if the state is asserting this like violent prerogative and it has to be confronted, and that whenever it's being applied, it's treating you as a white insider as if you're an excluded outsider population. Then the only real place of um, of like free choice is through like market relations, and that. To the extent that um, you know your freedom is tied to like your market choices, that um, it has to constantly be pushing back against what's seen as like these impositions um, from the government. So it's it's a it's a kind of continuous theme. So that there's there's all, there's been a question sort of debates about um, the American state about like why is it that Americans have this like anti-statist quote-unquote impulse or why is that such a strong and powerful strain and I don't think it can be understood without recognizing um, how like generations of Americans came to see like who should be subject to various forms of coercive power and then viewing um, particularly like the federal government's actions through the the lens of um, you know who should be free from various kinds of imposition and who's actually rightly subject to it. And so I think that's, I think you're absolutely right to see that as something that's continuous all the way through like the Tea Party and like the contemporary debates, for example, you know, about um, standoffs in, in, in Oregon and the Michigan militia and, uh, and on and on and on. I want to shift gears and, and turn to opposition to Chinese migration in the late 19th century, which is really the inception of formal immigration politics. How did the closing of the Western frontier, which was accomplished, of course, in significant part through Chinese labor on the transcontinental railroad, help facilitate the rise of Asian exclusion? And how was it that the Chinese were simultaneously viewed as an economic, cultural, geopolitical and political threat? Um, starting with like the California gold rush in the, the mid-19th century, over the course of like the second half of the 19th century, um, something in the neighborhood of 250,000 um, Chinese uh, migrants come to the U.S. Um, by the time we get to the 1880s, uh, like 90% are in the 10 westernmost um, states and territories. Um, two-thirds are in, are in California. You know, that just like with many 
populations, like um, Chinese migrants come for various reasons, oftentimes tied to sort of like economic opportunity, and that they're clear kind of in inducements on the part of both um, private actors and state actors to to bring these populations over um, in order to be able to like complete some of the um, the economic settlement projects. But what what Chinese migrants face almost immediately um, is this this essential like backlash about whether or not um, you can properly include Chinese as free citizens. And you know, even before like the closing of the frontier, the fairly systematic answer becomes like no. And that what you see emerging in like the last 20, 30 years of the 19th century is a new federal deportation system that's really the first time we have federal deportations at all that apply exclusively to Chinese. And it's part of a kind of steady or slow roll of policies. So during the first thing that happens is that during Reconstruction, you have a move away from 1802's naturalization policy that said that you can only naturalize free whites as citizens. And you have radical Republicans like Charles Sumner that say, well, you know, everybody, regardless of their own background, should be able to be naturalized as a U.S. citizen. But instead, the naturalization policy focuses exclusively on previously enslaved African persons. And the reason why is because you already have a kind of groundswell of opposition to including um, those that are Chinese. And Chinese and then more broadly Asian migrants find themselves in a category, aliens ineligible to naturalize. So they're non-citizens that can never become formal citizens. And then you have the very first federal deportation laws um, something called the Page Act. The Page Act is meant to limit um, entrance and then to be able to remove people that are associated with um, criminality and prostitution. But really what it ends up targeting are Chinese women. And to, to pause you really quickly there, why is it that this heavily gendered framework is the first effort at immigration restriction, formal immigration restriction, period, and at Chinese exclusion in particular? Was, was it aiming to keep the Chinese community from reproducing itself by ensuring that it remained overwhelmingly male? Absolutely. So between 1875 and by the time we get to like the 1890s, so in a period of 15 to 20 years, the Chinese population um, goes uh, from one where there's a, a substantial or sizable female population to 27 to 1 male. And the whole point is to make it impossible for Chinese people to be able to sustain a way of life in the U.S., to be able to reproduce, to establish families, develop communities, um, to become like fully part, in a sense, of like the land and territory. And you can see this as a really interesting inverse to what's happening at the same time that I mentioned earlier, which is all of these various policies that are trying to induce or convince um, white women settlers to move from the East to the very same territories, including through providing um, white women voting rights. But there's a number of different inducements, and the whole thought is that you're trying to construct a white family, and that through um, control of hearth and home, you can actually both demographically purify the area, but also have the kind of like ethically and ethnically um, appropriate community to, to engage in settlement politics. 
And that's a reminder that immigration policy, politics in particular, and race and place politics more generally are always reproductive politics. And they're just innumerable examples of this from violently anti-miscegenation ideology being the cornerstone of both slavery and Jim Crow as economic and social institutions to today the long-running nativist alarm over Latina fertility and so-called anchor babies. Yeah, I mean, you can see the uh, things like the Page Act as, you know, the, the prehistory of the obsession with anchor babies. It's about, you know, how is it that you demographically purify the republic and the extent to which you're using, um, you know, ethnic markers as judgments about who can appropriately enjoy the benefits of like free of free citizenship. Um, and, you know, I'd say that this is not an American story alone, um, that the, the, the use of these kinds of reproductive policies as a way of shaping demography we see we see globally, too. Um, and then so first you have aliens ineligible to naturalize. Um, so this is the experience of Chinese immigrants. And that's 1870. Yeah, 18, so that's 1870 where the naturalization laws are not written to be universal. Then 1875, you have the Page Act, and then you have the, the, the Chinese exclusion laws in 1882 and then 1892. And, the, and what these do is they bar entirely Chinese labor. Um, and then on top of it, what you end up having are um, alien land laws. What they did is that they said, this, these are laws that were passed at the state level, that if you were an alien, ineligible to naturalize. So basically this is targeting Chinese and then, and then um, Japanese. Japanese. Yep. Yeah, Chinese and Japanese, that you could not own land. And this is a form, you know, just like the treatment of non-slave African Americans and other communities that we've discussed in the antebellum period, of essentially disinvesting, disinheriting a population from access um, to the conditions of economic and political independence. Which is this like self-serving, ideologically self-serving circular logic by saying Chinese and Japanese people are not capable of free citizenship and free citizenship requires economic independence and we are denying you the basis of that economic independence. Yeah, I mean, this is the same story that you see repeated over and over again that you saw with enslaved African persons that you need certain populations to engage in degraded or hard forms of work. And that's, I think, the continuity between enslaved African Americans and, and Chinese that, that were engaging in like essential work for the construction of the American West. But, you know, then the statement that precisely the reason why we've consigned you to this hard work is precisely because you're unfit for free forms of labor. Um, and then the story with what happens with the Chinese population are, in a sense, a kind of uneasy truce between two different kind of countervailing pressures. One is, you know, a longstanding um, labor nativism um, that we can get to. So like the, the California Workingmen's Party is like a strong backer of Chinese exclusion, so the desire to like forcibly remove these populations because they're understood as a threat to white labor. And then, you know, a business community that wants an industrial reserve army that can both depress white wages, but that can also be used pliably to serve various kinds of corporate interests and territorial expansion out west, um, but wants to ensure that they don't, that, the, that these populations do not have rights that are meaningful. And so you have this, 
you know, steady balance of a population that's present, but that's limited, but that's essentially denied all the conditions of free citizenship. This is Sarah Jaffe, and you are listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, my favorite podcast for thoughtful discussions on the U.S. left and beyond. And you can support it on Patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is How Europe Underdeveloped Africa by Walter Rodney, with a foreword by Angela Davis. How Europe Underdeveloped Africa is an ambitious masterwork of political economy, detailing the impact of slavery and colonialism on the history of international capitalism. In this classic book, Rodney makes the unflinching case that African maldevelopment is not a natural feature of geography, but a direct product of imperial extraction from the continent, a practice that continues up into the present. Meticulously researched, how Europe underdeveloped Africa remains a relevant study for understanding the so-called great divergence between Africa and Europe, just as it remains a prescient resource for grasping the multiplication of global inequality today. In this new edition, Angela Davis offers a striking foreword to the book, exploring its lasting contributions to a revolutionary and feminist practice of anti-imperialism. How Europe Underdeveloped Africa by Walter Rodney, with a foreword by Angela Davis. Out now from Verso Books. Something that you have mentioned a few times in recent minutes of this interview is is how the Reconstruction era politics surrounding Asian exclusion and modest black incorporation intersected. You mentioned the 1870 legislation, which extended the right to naturalize to black people, but denied it to, to Asians. And then there is Justice Harlan's famous lonely dissent in the Supreme Court's 1896 Plessy v. Ferguson decision, which legalized so-called separate but equal treatment of black Americans. And Harlan makes a point of favorably comparing black Americans to disparaged Chinese. And it's a, I'm just going to quote a brief passage from it, quote, there is a race so different from our own that we do not permit those belonging to it to become citizens of the United States. Persons belonging to it are with few exceptions, absolutely excluded from our country. I allude to the Chinese race. But by the statute in question, a Chinaman can ride in the same passenger coach with white citizens of the United States, while citizens of the black race in Louisiana, many of whom perhaps risked their lives for the preservation of the Union, who are entitled by law to participate in the political control of the state and nation, who are not excluded by law or by reason of their race from public stations of any kind, and who have all the legal rights that belong to white citizens, are yet declared to be criminals liable to imprisonment if they ride in a public coach occupied by citizens of the white race. What does this differential way that two different subordinate groups were treated during this period reveal about how different strands of late 19th century settlerism managed a system of incorporation and exclusion 
that was changing so much in the wake of slavery's destruction and also amidst the closing of the frontier and the rise of industrial capitalism? It's a remarkable passage. And, you know, every year when I like I teach um, Plessy versus Ferguson um, in constitutional law and students read that Harlan dissent, they're really thrown by those passages because the way that the dissent is generally treated in, you know, sort of our public conversations is, you know, Harlan is the lone voice of reconstruction here where he's essentially saying that, well, wait a second, like, what is it that the Civil War was supposed to be about? The Civil War was not just about ending formal slavery, but it was ending what he, in many opinions, called like all of the badges of servitude. And that included a systematic structure of racial subordination. And he views the emergence of um, a new system of Jim Crow as a continuation of these badges of servitude. And so has this, you know, very stirring language about um, the Constitution's colorblindness and the importance of thinking of African-Americans as as full citizens. What he's highlighting here is a really interesting thing, which is throughout much of American life, whiteness has a kind of property value. Like if there's a property interest instead of benefits that come from being white. He's saying, well, the whole thing about the Civil War is that there's there's blackness um, has a kind of property value too. That, you know, African Americans fought and died on, on the side of the Union. And for that reason, to have uh, whites and blacks separated in these coach cars is a disservice to the point of the Civil War. Indeed, to have a situation where you have like the children and ex-Confederates um, lording it over a population that that fought um, for the country as opposed to behave treasonously is like unacceptable. But, and this is the big but, if he's navigating the late 19th century to say that African Americans should be settlers too, that's that's the heart of his argument. But if African Americans should be settlers too, that doesn't mean that everybody's included. There are still communities that are culturally unfit for full membership. And the community that he has in mind, the Chinese. And he's using the juxtaposition as a kind of rhetorical point for a white audience, which is, you know, the, the, the white audience sees Chinese, um, Chinese immigrants as so culturally distinct, so dissimilar, not sharing any of like the, the religious or ethical background in free citizenship. And yet they don't face, don't necessarily face according to this law, though they didn't according to a variety of other laws, um, systems of segregation. Like how is it acceptable to treat African-Americans worse than you're treating um, Chinese? And it speaks to, this is something you asked earlier, which is, that for an overlapping set of constituencies, um, there was a, the view of the Chinese as like an unassimilable danger. So that there were a danger, and this ends up including Japanese as well, there were danger to some members of like the white um, um, labor community because of like the, the economic challenge and sort of like the competition over, wa- uh, over like wage earning jobs, especially as the frontier closes and industrialization becomes more and more intense. Um, they're viewed as a geostrategic threat because of the sense that like China is this powerful empire, that it's emerging and rising in the Pacific, and especially at a time in which you have growing non-white political assertiveness, and the, the U.S. is a 
is a white outpost in the non-white world, and so the challenge of a non-white empire is particularly pronounced. There are cultural threats because of the thought that they're not grounded in the same kinds of Christian traditions that even Catholics are that provide a spiritual formation for free citizenship. Um, and that all of these things together mean that you cannot include Chinese as equals. And the best way to understand what's going on here and how this plays out is actually by comparing this case, Plessy versus Ferguson and Harlan's opinion, to another case that usually the two aren't linked. And that's a case called Wong Kim Ark from 1898. And Wong Kim Ark is a case about um, a like a, Ch a Chinese person that's born in the U.S. and so enjoys, under the 14th Amendment, birthright citizenship, and that is returning back to the States and is denied um, entrance at the border based on the thought that, like, well, actually, you know, this person isn't a U.S. citizen, a claim that the person is, in fact, not a U.S. citizen. Because their parents were and, not citizens and Chinese. Yeah, because the parents were not citizens. And this ends up litigating the question about whether or not children of non-citizens in the U.S. enjoy birthright citizenship status. And the majority of the court says yes. And the thing that's really interesting about that case is that the court's majority is the same as the Plessy majority, and Harlan is in dissent in both cases. Yeah. He signs on to a, an opinion by another judge named Fuller, which basically says you cannot provide um, Chinese people with birthright citizenship precisely because of their cultural unfitness. And that to him, this is that citizenship means something. It has these substantive values, like it brings with it like a rich array of rights. Um, the him here is Harlan. And so giving all of those rights to the children of Chinese immigrants is to essentially fundamentally compromise the racial composition of the country and so the ethical composition. And tellingly, the, the, the majority opinion in this rare case that affirms any sorts of rights for Chinese Americans also believes that the basic framework of, of white citizenship would be challenged by not extending 14th Amendment protections to the children of, of Chinese citizens. They write... Quote, to hold that the 14th Amendment of the Constitution excludes from citizenship the children born in the United States of citizens or subjects of other countries would be to deny citizenship to thousands of persons of English, Scotch, Irish, German, or other European parentage who have always been considered and treated as citizens of the United States. So there's like this shared logic in the majority opinion and the dissent. Yeah, absolutely. So that the majority thinks it's essential to extend birthright citizenship to Chinese because to reject the principle of birthright citizenship would would undermine the citizen, as you stated, like the citizenship status of a vast array of European migrants. And the majority is still absolutely committed um, to the project of like ensuring settlement by these communities. But then there's a second thing. And this is in a way what the disagreement between the majority and the dissent ends up turning on which is the majority is not concerned about providing birthright citizenship to Chinese because there's no presumption that you have to provide extensive rights to people that are citizens. Huh, yeah. Consisted with what we've been describing is like the central divide is between settler and non-settler rather than citizen and non-citizen. Yeah, these same people voted for Plessy. So they're like, well, we could yeah. just have a caste system that subjugates Exactly. Them. Their, their view is like, well, just they can be formal citizens – 
But then the only people that have voting rights or, you know, would be uh, white, um, those that enjoy birthright citizenship that are of European, um, like ethnic backgrounds. And so they're perfectly comfortable with the idea, well, the solution to this is establishing like a Jim Crow system for people of Chinese and Asian descent, which is in fact what ends up happening out West. And in a way, you know, the reason why this is an interesting moment is because both in a sense like Harlan and um, and Gray, who writes the majority opinion, like, you know, all of these are in uh, in Wong Kim Ark and even Brown in, um, in Plessy, who writes the majority opinion in Plessy, like all of these are folks that are still committed in a deep sense to the structure, like the infrastructure of, of settler politics, but are disagreeing about you know, how to navigate which populations fit where and which and whether or not the solution is essentially like removal or subordination for the populations that don't fit. And turning to the dissent, Fuller and Har- Harlan argued that the subject to the jurisdiction thereof clause of the 14th Amendment couldn't apply to the children of Chinese non-citizens born in the United States because because Chinese people are bound to the emperor, quote, by every conception of duty and by every principle of their religion, of which filial piety is the first and greatest commandment, which meant they were, quote, subject to a foreign power. That's revealing in a lot of ways. One is that it reveals how basically and fundamentally immigration politics are always thoroughly geopolitical. The dissenters here, like like many opponents of Chinese migration, very much do see Chinese migrants as agents of the emperor. Absolutely. I mean, so just to do this as a gloss, if this was the end of the 18th century, you know, that argument would be applied to which community? That would be applied to Catholics. And in particular, you know, French Catholics, and this is the view of Quebec, for example, um, that, you know, this is that Catholicism is religion that requires your obedience to a pope that means that you're not actually capable of being a free citizen. End of the 19th, early 20th century, these arguments apply to Chinese, and then they're, they're going to apply with increasing intensity to, to, um, to Japanese citizens and migrants as well. And the anti-Catholic iteration of that emerged in the mid-19th century, right before the Civil War as well, with the know-nothings. Absolutely. So I mean, there's um, there these di- there are clearly these different moments like um, the 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 end story of um, the treatment of Chinese and Japanese is the 24 Natural Origins Act that essentially bans entirely migration from Asia, and then we're gonna you know then you have like the Japanese internment that takes place during World War II, and then I'd say like you have a a similar set of arguments that get made about Muslim populations, Arab and Muslim populations today. That, you know, there's something inherent about Islam, like Islam is a religion of authoritarianism. It promotes various kinds of, um, you know, sort of like violent sympathies that mean that like Muslim populations are on a kind of path to radicalization that makes them unable to be able to participate fully as as Americans. And indeed, the forms of things that we see as markers of good American citizenship, dissent, political participation, these are threatening when they're uh, when they come from Muslim um, communities and have to be criminalized through statutes like material support statutes. And what is it? This is why I focused on the ends of these centuries. Like, what is it about like the late 18th century? The first half of the twenty, the late nineteenth, and the first half of the twentieth century, with um, Chinese and, and Japanese citizens, and then Muslim populations today. These are all places geopolitically 
where American power is hot. In other words, these are central sites of conflict. And the thing that's ultimately, in a way, making these communities especially dangerous at these specific moments in time have actually nothing to do with the internal characteristics of the community. Like, you know, why is it that by the time we get to the mid and late um, 19th century, there's actually, despite, like, you know, know-nothing efforts, a pretty steady incorporation of Catholics. Um, you need those populations for the demographic settlement of the West. Um, and the geostrategic alignments shift. You can say the same thing about Chinese and, and, um, and Japanese um, migrants today, which is like today the story is that these are, quote-unquote, like model minorities with all of the, like, attendant problems of that framing. But that's because, like, the site of American power has, has shifted in various ways. And then what is it about, like, Muslim populations? Again, it has nothing to do with the inherent characteristics of these populations. It has to do with, well, it's the Middle East and, you know, parts of Asia that are precisely where American geostrategic power is most explicitly present as the, like, effective regional hegemon. And, you know, I think this is one of the things that's, that's like, pretty consistently missed, which is the story of the quote-unquote assimilation of any of these communities is never about, well, the community changed. They became Americanized. It's always about, well, actually, the power asserted by the state shifted its gaze or focus in ways that made the population far less threatening in the terms that marked it in a specific moment in time. Yeah, that's so important. There's this consistent threat. You look at Samuel Huntington's work on on Mexican immigration and this idea that there's something uniquely unassimilable about Mexican migrants to the United States, the idea that they're forming a nation within the the nation, which is such a common trope on the nativist right in recent decades. But it's an, an entire projection of the lack of willingness to, to integrate and incorporate from the dominant classes in the state that the dominant classes wield power through projected on onto the the subordinate group. Yeah, no, uh, absolutely. There's another even weirder level to this, which that it's commonly believed on the right today that Mexican migrants are engaged in what is described as a reconquista, a reconquest of at least the American Southwest. And to me, this seems like a really revealing conspiracy theory because it is Americans at the center of empire projecting their fear of imperial dominance onto the victims, the subordinate groups within U.S. empire. I don't know if this is going too far, but do you think it's fair to say that one of anti-immigrant politics' central functions is precisely to obscure American empire by fetishizing the immigrant symptoms of that empire? The the thing that's that's noteworthy about the, the story, about the relationship between the U.S. and Mexico that we've already highlighted is, first, like to the extent that there's a conquest, it's half of... Mexican territory is taken from Mexico, and you have a, a population of individuals that become U.S. citizens but are systematically denied the basic benefits of, in fact, being a citizen. And then what you end up having in the 20th century is the extensive effort that's a unified effort of both state and business to attempt to essentially use um, you know, migrant Mexican labor as a way of you know, providing a new pliable labor supply that's engaged in work under degraded conditions with like with limited rights and you have this through various kinds of like official programs like the bracero program 
that operates in the mid-century that brought annually like 200,000 people um, to work in the U.S. But then you also just have lots of other formal and informal networks that actually make the border something much more like a kind of um, a fluid site of movement where you have communities that exist uh, and family networks that exist on both sides dependent on, you know, where work is and, um, you know, what the, the particular employment or labor patterns consist in. And that throughout this whole mid-20th century period, you know, what ends up happening is that during periods of economic downturn or white nativist backlash because of concerns about, like, ethnic or economic threat, that you have the state essentially come in and engage in incredibly violent acts of population control. So during the New Deal, you have hundreds of thousands of Mexicans, including formal U.S. citizens, that are forced to go back um, across the border to the U.S., um, families um, broken and destroyed, people killed. You have operations that proceed in the context of the Bracero program in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, most famously, quote-unquote, Operation Wetback, that, like, forcibly removes, again, massive numbers of Mexicans across the border. All of this, you know, as the basic story of, of like, the first two-thirds of the 20th century is not a story of quote-unquote Mexican uh, reconquest. It's a story of um, Mexican labor that's being facilitated through state and private actors to make the border something that's fluid and then to face like extreme forms of violence and subordination when it's, you know, American business and the American state that, you know, views that labor as surplus or unnecessary. And then this, of course, in many ways actually becomes even more significant post-65, where in 1965, the U.S. ends up finally eliminating racially restrictive immigration quotas. But what it does for the very first time is it then imposes a quota system on the Western Hemisphere. And it means that your movement from um, Mexico, like north, now becomes subject um, to a quota structure where like the traditional networks of economy and family that had marked this sort of symbiotic relationship across both sides of the border now end up targeting individuals who are just doing what they've always done as quote-unquote illegal. It's at this moment, in a way, where you see really like the explosion of undocumented status for those that are Mexican migrants. None of this has to do with, you know, a story of geopolitical threat from, from Mexico or Central America. I mean, what's, what's motivating these shifts are shifts in domestic policy that are driven by domestic judgments and that are also located in a set of global relationships in, in which the U.S. is asserting various forms of not just economic control, but like real foreign policy violence on Central and Latin America, as you described with like what's happening in places like El Salvador by the time we get to like the, the 70s and 80s. And so it obscures the history in a way that is super destructive. It makes it impossible. Telling the story as a story of like, it's Americans, quote unquote, and really this is coded as white Americans that are under threat from Latinos, not only like very aggressively ignores the actual history, um, but it's a form of like continuous alibi, which in many ways, it's like a form of continuous alibi for the actual exercise of American global power and violence. 
And it's an alibi that's predicated as we started like the conversation on like on this like sort of deep or rigid methodological nationalism. Oh, it's these are just the borders and the borders protect those that are on the inside. And these folks f- makes no sense why they want to come in they're, They want to come in because they're threatening. And the people either cross it yeah, exactly. legally or illegally, you know, which is th- th- this point becomes the central distinction because ironically, the 1965 law signed by LBJ, the Hart-Celler Act, prohibits formal racism in immigration law, but then leads to this incredible obfuscation of the deeply racist system at work. And so you have people speaking in this facially race-neutral language about, you know, their problem with undocumented immigrants isn't that they're Mexican or with immigration, it's that they're, they came the wrong way, quote, quote unquote, you know, whereas their ancestors came the right way, which of course obscures the fact that for most of American history, the right way was just being white. And it's also that, you know, for for most of American history, that the border was essentially like a port of entry. And so there was no federal migration system in the same way. And that the, to the extent that it existed, it existed precisely to import you in because you are white. Um, and, you know, the other thing that I'd say about this, which is so Hart Seller and the, the 65 bill, there are these three distinct periods in a way that have these overlapping effects. There's a story of migration policy up to the 20s. Really what ends up happening in the teens is that you have the passage of literacy test for migrants that are coming in in 1917 and then two quotas, quota laws, 1921 quota law that's more racially inclusive and then 24 which bans entry entirely from Asia and Africa and that transforms the, you know, the immigrant population from one that was more mixed in terms of European ancestry into like 84% from Western Europe. And it also ends up dramatically decreasing the number, the population of people that are foreign born in the U.S. So by the time we get to the mid 20th century, the foreign born population is like 5% of the country where it had been 15% at the turn of the century. And the big thing that's happening that's that's provoking these the, the change between the late 19th century and then the imposition of these policies in the 20s is the closing of the frontier, the way in which there just isn't the same need for European migrants in order to be able to, to settle the West and the sense that increasingly um, migrants are being experienced uh, on the ground as like economic competitors rather than co-participants in a, a shared project of American expansion. That marks the 20s. And then there's another kind of decisive moment in the 60s. And the the 65 law is really part of the post-World War II Cold War liberal commitment to, you know, what you can think of as Cold War civil rights. So it's part of like a, a civil rights project. It, it, the law is passed the same year as the Voting Rights Act, the year after the Civil Rights Act. It's strongly defended by folks like, um, <clears throat> like uh, Martin Luther King. And it's understood as an assertion of a particular kind of liberal creed that, like, the U.S. has stood from the founding for the principles of, of like, freedom and equality for all the parts of the Declaration of Independence that we like, not the parts that we don't like. And in a way, um, that kind of ideological ground for the bill, like, the bill is built on the idea that also that the country is a nation of immigrants. Everyone, you know, whether an enslaved African-American person or like a person of Chinese descent or somebody that's Mexican or European, they're all equally 
people that came from abroad and have built the country. Which is incredibly novel in the 1960s. It was only, and Donna Grabaccia has done great research on this, it was only at the beginning of the era of restriction in the late 19th and early 20th century that the word immigrant even began to, came into use. And it was, it had a negative connotation at the time. Prior, people were called emigrants, which could refer to either people moving to settle out west or coming into the country. It was more of a synonym for settler. But then suddenly in the 1960s, after JFK and whatnot, there's this idea that we're, and amidst the civil rights movement, the black freedom movement, there's this idea that we're a nation of immigrants. And to this day, liberals especially, I think, reread all of the country's history backwards through that erroneous lens. You know, it's very interesting that we've been somewhat anachronistic in talking about the the early history. And, you know, occasionally I've been slipping in the word immigrant that like the word that was used was immigrant. And it, you know, it, it could mean coming from abroad, but an immigrant could just be somebody that's moving from a different locality from another county or another state. Um, Oftentimes, the people that were actually on ships um, coming from Europe, the term for them was like passenger. Um, And the way that, you know, migration policy was organized wasn't even one that really emphasized a distinction between the national border and other local borders. You know, oftentimes it would be done at the state level and the state policy would be about like, you know, limitations on people with contagious diseases or concerns about folks that might be quote unquote paupers. And so like, um, you know, or removal of people that were paupers from one state to another or placing people that are poor in workhouses in places like Massachusetts or in New York. Um, and immigration becomes the language of the new restrictionism in the late 19th century. And then it only really emerges as a positive language in, you know, basically like when you're starting to get to like the 30s and the the popular font culture of the New Deal that's built on white ethnic working class votes in the cities that's telling a story of cultural pluralism as what defines the country. Of course, the thing that's really interesting about it is it's precisely at the historical moment where the, the borders you know, most aggressively closed. Including to Jews um, fleeing the Holocaust. Exactly. Um, and then it comes back in the late 50s and early 60s. John F. Kennedy is very closely associated with the termination of immigrants, and it becomes the basis for the 65 bill. And the reason why, you know, telling this is actually useful for the, the conversation we're having about nativism is because the Hart seller bill, the, the arguments around the U.S. as a nation of immigrants... What it does also is it just obscures um, the nature of not just like the history of, of population control, but how like the U.S. Is, is situated in the world. It's just like, you know, the U.S., just a country like any other country. Its relationship to Mexico is really like no different than its relationship to any other country globally. There are no real power um, different uh, differences to the extent that the U.S. Is, um, has any place in the world. Maybe it's like that first nation among equals. Um, and so it's totally appropriate. You, uh, you, know, you get rid of racial restrictions. You apply quotas to the Western Hemisphere. You apply quotas to the... You get country-specific quotas in the 1970s applied evenly, which we still have today, that gives people from Bhutan the same number of visas as Mexicans. And the, the only way that this makes any kind of sense 
is essentially if you've stripped like all of like the historical specificity and truth from the story of migration, which is the policy has been built around demographic settlement of the right kinds of populations. The U.S. is both a colonial enterprise domestically and a particular kind of um, global imperial project that then also has very complicated relationships with places like Mexico and, and other countries in Latin America, and that all of these end up shape, shaping very particular population flows. There's a population flow from Mexico that is not the equivalent of a population flow, as you said, from Bhutan. And the story of the nation of immigrants just means, okay, the U.S. is basically, it's almost like it's an island country, and everybody else sees like this project of freedom and equality that exists domestically and just are kind of jumping to come in. And so we have to put quotas to limit who can come in, but they come in from all over the place. So we're going to have to be fair and give everyone yeah, the same gotta, amount. Yeah, we got to be fair. And then the problem becomes they seem to be – more people seem to be coming in than the, the quotas allow. And then the debate becomes, you know, the liberal position is, well, we should be – more inviting about the people that want to come in and the quote-unquote conservative position is, well, wait a second, laws are laws and it's illegal to try to come in in ways that supersede the quota. And so the nativists are able to essentially obscure the racial grounding of their argument, which is an argument about about essentially demographic purity, which occasionally seeps through. Occasionally you have sessions yeah. say something like, you know, actually I like those 1924 national origins quota or like Bannon say, you know, we should be a quote unquote civic society. But for the most part, Pat Buchanan. that gets, a, it, it all gets obscured because in a way um, it's all framed through a popular conversation you know, about the U.S. as sort of ethically open to all, but organized through particular rules that are colorblind and that, you know, highlight it's the country's status um, as a nation of immigrants. And then what ends up happening practically is that communities that in fact, because of the colonial and imperial histories, have like thick relationships with the country, um, find themselves facing the brunt of coercive violence in a way in which you know, it's very difficult within the terms of American discourse to even articulate, you know, why an, an undocu undocumented migrant from um, Mexico is actually like a subordinated person in this country that's tied to like three centuries of history. Yeah, you, you write, quote, now in place of European co-ethnics, immigrants to the United States are overwhelmingly non-white, the very individuals that settlers once deemed unfit for full membership. And instead of extending settler projects into the frontier or periphery, as 19th century immigrants did, today's new arrivals in essence represent the movement of this periphery into the very center of metropolitan power. I think this is very right on. And as we've been discussing, it seems that it's this entire historical trajectory is obscured precisely by the nation of immigrant stories that pro-immigration liberals and establishment conservatives are so dedicated to telling. By contrast, the, the people on the most radical fringes of the nativist right are, are correct that immigration today is fundamentally different, uh, but only the most brazenly white nationalist and paleoconservative nativists will say precisely why. I think that's right, which is there's a particular kind of national myth um, that obscures the the kinds of forces and dynamics that, that shape population movement. 
And the only folks that unfortunately seem to be willing to actually, you know, highlight the the story of like of like racially defined population control are the the sessions and bannons of the world that want to affirm a particular kind of demographic project. Um, but I think the thing that you know for those of us on the left that that needs to be said is that you know that this operates in a couple different ways. Like so, why is it that you have large numbers of people from the global south that make up the predominant percentage of people that come to the U.S. And that's a story that's not just about like, oh, you know, folks from everywhere around the world want to come to the country because it's because of like it's free and equal. It's a story about the profound global inequities that are hard written into the international order and of which the U.S. enjoys the greatest amount of benefit. The U.S. is a dominant um, global empire. Um, and that has constructed international legal arrangements so that its capital essentially flows everywhere while controlling the terms under which people come to the country. And those terms are, you know, essentially folks that can come to do hard work domestically but face like a continuous shadow of probation and potential removal. Of course, it's going to be people that are from parts of the world that are historically colonized and dispossessed that are willing to move in the first place. But then connected to that general geostrategic point, there's a point that you've made about foreign policy. Well, it's also oftentimes people that are facing actual violence within their own home countries due to direct American foreign policy interference. I mean, this is the story of like of like Syria, of various places in the Middle East. This is the story, obviously, of Central America, Guatemala, um, you know, uh, El Salvador, etc. And then there's a third point, which is the American project has been tied to particular kinds of both symbiotic but unequal relationships with particular states like Mexico. And so obviously you're going to have migration flows that are quite distinct from what you'd see in other parts of the world. And all of those actually have to be confronted. And it's why, in a sense, like the solution can only begin by saying, like, we need to repudiate, like, this focus on, like, on the border as some kind of closed barrier that has to be protected for internal democracy, where, like, the, the whole internal project is one about imperial expansion that has these reverberating effects. That's why those from the periphery come to the center. And there needs to be a recognition that those from the periphery that now are coming to the center are engaged in the same kind of hard work that, you know, was historically um, provided by subordinated populations under conditions that look, you know, that have really clear resonances in terms of like limited rights protections, like the constant shadow of um, state and private violence. In many ways, the continuation of one clear side of the long story of, of demographic control in the U.S. The Wong Kim Ark ruling, which we were talking about a little while ago and led us down our the path we've been on, I wanted to talk a little bit more about that because what it did was affirm that the 14th Amendment did provide birthright citizenship to anyone born in the U.S. regardless of the nationality, citizenship status of their parents. And... This is incredibly important today because Trump has declared that he can end birthright citizenship by executive order without violating Juan Kimark on the grounds, if I have it right, 
that contrary to all normal interpretation of that decision since it was made, that the decision only granted citizenship in the case in question because the parents were legal residents. What does this reinterpretation of Wong Kimark at the moment we find ourselves in today say about the politics of reinventing caste in the United States? So the thing that I would say is that we've spent a lot of time talking about, um, I mean, um, scholars and activists over the last decade plus about the new Jim Crow as a way of describing the rise of mass incarceration and the kind of interconnections between race and class that mark um, black subordination in the present. And I think that's been a really powerful and important conversation. But I actually think there are really significant ways in which... um, you know, the contemporary um, treatment of undocumented populations, but really of like immigrant, you know, large chunks of the immigrant community more generally, actually have very powerful echoes of Jim Crow. And that it's another site where we're seeing the replication of something that looks like a new Jim Crow. And maybe it's just like worth teasing out a whole bunch of it and showing how it's connected to the birthright citizenship question. So, you know, um, liberal um, liberal lawyers and scholars have like focused on the fact that like Trump's argument about undocumented immigrants, the children of undocumented immigrants not having birthright citizenship basically just like fails as a matter of understanding the 14th Amendment, contemporaneous naturalization laws, um, the doctrine of uh, Wong Kim Ark, and can just like very very quickly like make that argument and sort of dispatch dispatch it like so the the point is that the Fourteenth Amendment <clears throat> includes this language that says everybody's entitled to birthright citizenship that's subject to the jurisdiction thereof and what by all accounts like the framers of the Fourteenth Amendment understood that language to to exclude were basically like the children of foreign diplomats and like you know foreign officials based on the thought that like if you're a foreign diplomat or foreign minister in a country um you were you enjoyed like um benefits of immunity like you you could be immune from like the the laws local laws and just as the actual property of the embassy is technically foreign territory exactly child if they're born here is technically foreign in that case yeah, so that you have various kinds of like counselor, uh, consular protections, and so all of that means that um, that that birthright citizenship should not then be extended to your children because of the fact that like you're actually not su- subject to lo- you're potentially not subject to local law. Like that's that's essentially what that caveat was was meant for. Um, there then becomes like a debate about to what extent that actually also ends up including um, native peoples, quote, Indians, quote unquote, not taxed. So these are native peoples that are not living within sort of like U.S. states and territories, but are remaining on Indian uh, reservations, particularly during like the era of the treaty system where native communities and uh, Indian nations were essentially like their policies with the U.S. state was sort of organized through treaty practices. That's the basic view that ends up undergirding um, the extension, the legal extension of birthright citizenship in Wong Kim Ark to a Chinese person of whose parents are are non-citizens. It's the the basis of how like the statutes have been interpreted, and it means that this distinction between legal and and illegal resident um, just doesn't hold a lot of water. And because of the fact that even if you're an undocumented 
immigrant, you're still subject to the laws thereof. Like you don't actually have various kinds of immunity because like, you know, protections from some foreign government. And then of course, like as a matter of like historical argument, it also doesn't work because the category quote unquote of illegal did not even exist in the late 19th century. So all of these are reasons why these are bad legal arguments. But that's actually not, I think, what's at stake here. What's at stake here is like, well, it's cutting against what was supposed to be the central purpose of birthright citizenship. So why is the section one of the 14th Amendment, why does it include like birthright citizenship language in the first place? It's meant to overrule Dred Scott. So Dred Scott is a decision in 1857 where Roger Taney says that African-Americans, whether um, free or enslaved, have no rights that whites are bound to respect and that African-Americans um, in either category are not federal citizens for purposes of the Constitution. And it does something else, which it also says that if, they, if African-Americans are not federal citizens as a constitutional matter, Congress cannot naturalize African-Americans even non-slave African-Americans, to be federal citizens. In other words, Congress can't pass a law like the Naturalization Act of 1802 saying like, that, that African-Americans are now naturalized as federal citizens. And the reason why, according to Dred Scott, <clears throat> is because Dred Scott, uh, the, the, because Taney says that the naturalization power that Congress has only applies to individuals that are foreign um, subjects of like a foreign government that are moving to the U.S. and that enslaved persons and the children of enslaved persons are not moving from another country. They're, you know, here on the land in the U.S. And so Congress doesn't have these naturalization powers. The 14th Amendment's birthright citizenship clause was meant to overcome that and to say no, that African-Americans can be federal citizens. But more than just that, what it was supposed to do was by establishing federal citizenship for African Americans, ensure, this is the goal of the radical Republicans at least, ensure that you have an end um, to a, a broader system of racial subordination because of the thought at the time that there were these other provisions that actually gave substantive teeth to what it meant to be a federal citizen. Being a federal citizen wouldn't just be like an empty formal category with a variety of different stratified statuses and you know various forms of segregation and subordination that go hand in hand with it. There are supposed to be privileges and immunities that attach to being a federal citizen. There's supposed to be equal protection um, that attaches to being a federal citizen, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the story of the last third really, of the 19th century, is that even if the South was no longer formally like a slave economy, it was still, in fact, organized on principles of coerced and enslaved labor. And there wasn't the political will in the North to fundamentally reconstruct racial and economic relations. And it meant that the old Southern slaveocracy and what became the new sort of kind of white supremacist oligarchy just improvised time and again new ways of saying, okay, well, you might have birthright citizenship, but in point of fact, you're going to be subject still to this, the same kinds of coercive labor and you know, political regimes. And this ends up being sanctioned by the Supreme Court. So you have a case 
called the Slaughterhouse Cases in 1873, where the court basically says, you know what? We're going to essentially gut the meaning of the Privileges and Immunities Clause and so that there are actually very few rights that are associated with being a federal citizen. Most of your rights, like your right to vote, are state guarantees. And um, the court is only going to be in the business of protecting African Americans when states infringe on this very limited set of federal citizenship guarantees, things like being able to come to the seat of government or have protections at the high seas, but not stuff like, like voting in particular. And you end up having like the emergence of like sharecropping, which sort of improvises new bonded forms of black labor. You have systematic voting disenfranchisement. And then you have like a broader structure of segregation. And these end up being kind of overlapping modes of white supremacy that maintain a coerced and dependent black labor supply for a white Southern economy while denying to African Americans any of the political rights that would be necessary in order to be able to contest that condition of, of dependence. And that's like the story of the return of white supremacy in the South. And it's also the story of like the gutting of the meaning of birthright citizenship. I would say that when folks like Trump invoke this this rhetoric about how undocumented, the children of undocumented immigrants should not have birthright citizenship, you should see it as a contemporary effort to essentially replicate many of those old systems and to, again, gut what's supposed to be the meaning of birthright citizenship, which is like no subordinated racial caste. Because look at what the present consists in. You have a population of undocumented immigrants, like the numbers, um, depending on like how they get counted, it's like some, some numbers are more like 11 million, others uh, say that the numbers are closer to like 20. Um, the majority are from Mexico because of the kind of symbiotic relationships that you, that I just described. Um, they exist within a modern immigration system that's the product of 1996 reforms that um, that like Clinton signed into law um, that essentially use a system of deportation, detention, and criminalization to mean that everyone, including legal residents, are on a condition of permanent probation that could find their status revoked. And as a quick aside, are deeply embedded in the, the war on crime and also the in the prehistory of the war on terror. Absolutely. That, you know, 1996 is also um, the year that you have things like the passage of like EDPA, the effective, um, uh, what is it, like the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act, which is uh, a way of like essentially creating a new criminal system that's anti that's supposed to be about anti-terrorism, but again, provides greater um, criminal um, uh, sanctions and capacities for the state to confront particular kinds of, of, um, of non-white populations. And then also the Illegal Immigration and Immigrant Responsibility Act of the same year. Yeah, so that, that that's the the immigration reform bill that I was describing. That's like from ninety six. That's like the the key piece of legislation. And what it does is it means that you now have this population. The population is here because of various forms of state and private business inducement, as well as like long standing colonial and imperial patterns and symbiotic uh, relationships that exist between different states. But facing like the permanent threat of deportation, 
um, because of these various reforms like limited access to social programs and benefits, no voting rights, limited labor rights. And then the other thing that's just sort of like the, the cherry on the top, so to speak, to just highlight the resonances with the late 19th century, that over half of the non-citizen prison population in federal prisons are in segregated prisons. So this is like incredible work that's been done by a scholar named Emma Kaufman, and she has an article on this that's going to be that's forthcoming, I think, in the Harvard Law Review, but I could be mistaken about the location. 19,000 federal prisoners that are non-citizens are in non-citizen-only prisons. And the majority of them are there for like low-level drug offenses, so not even for um, immigration-related offenses. Um, this is something that basically started emerging in the late 90s as a kind of outgrowth of um, those reforms in 96. And not surprisingly, just like with past separate but equal systems, um, these prisons that again house more than half of um, non-citizens that are in federal prison have limited health um, benefits, fewer various programs, higher instances of violence tend to be in more isolated locations further away from like the families of people that are non-citizens. And if you take a look at this whole structure as a whole, like what is it that you see? Like you see a population from the global periphery, precisely the parts of the world that were historically understood as unfit for full membership engaged domestically in the harder degraded forms of work that are necessary for the economy but are not viewed as consistent with like free labor from like difficult forms of wage earning agricultural work to um, domestic um, household work that exists in the home that's also highly gendered and feminized. Living under circumstances where there's a continuous shadow of state violence with no meaningful labor protections, minimal access to social benefits, and on top of it, like no meaningful political rights, including the right to vote. The state violence, the state repression is integral to producing the category of illegality. You just mentioned this, the separate prison, the separate prison system, but very much interior raids and also this spectacular militarization of the border, which arguably doesn't do very much to actually keep people from coming in historically, but does very effectively communicate to the American public, this distinction that these people are illegal through the criminalization. Yeah, and, and the other thing that you can say, like, you know, all of these analogies aren't perfect fits, but the thing that this analogy is highlighting is that a large part of what old Jim Crow, quote unquote, was about was an economic system, like maintaining a dependent labor supply through racial subordination and state backed violence including through like spectacular acts of violence and lawless, lawlessness um, on the edges like, um, like lynching and other forms of violence as well. And like what is it that we see at present here is a system that's organized to maintain a dependent labor supply and that operates through um, systematic disenfranchisement and that uses spectacular forms of violence as well, like, you know, including the kinds of state criminality that we're seeing meted out at the border, like the separation of families, the death of migrant children, and on and on and on. So that means that when, 
when Trump talks about r rescinding birthright citizenship, you know, maybe birthright citizenship is not going to get rescinded. Maybe it's just rhetoric. But it shouldn't be experienced as just sort of like hot air for like a nativist base. It actually tells us something really foundational about the contemporary nature of migration policy and the way in which our contemporary migration policy essentially re you know like reasserts the very worst elements of how population control was managed in in like the long quote unquote 19th century and what in fact then might be like necessary to overcome it and that what's necessary to overcome it is a heck of a lot more than some trade-off between additional border security and, you know, limited domestic amnesty, let's say, for dreamers. That if essentially what we see are modern iterations of like an old, old Jim Crow organized through the old imperial prerogative, then this has to be smashed root and branch. One other historical connection before we close by talking about how we smash it root and branch is that... Just as the early period of restriction that accompanied the closing of the, the frontier from the late 19th to early 20th century also restricted was an end to non-citizen voting, which had been so prevalent in the 19th century, today the Trump administration is trying to finish off that project or further consolidate it or take it to the next level or whatever by, by ensuring that the census separately counts non-citizens, which has gotten a lot of play because it could depress undocumented participation in the census, but it could also potentially be used to do something that conservatives have wanted to do for a long time, which is to shift congressional and state legislative seats away from left-leaning areas with large immigrant populations by excluding non-citizens from the count that's used for reapportionment. And this is remarkable, given the, the antebellum conservatives successfully counted their slaves as three-fifths of a person for purposes of their own political power. And also that conservative districts today, especially in rural areas, continue to count disenfranchised prisoners from cities as part of their local population for reapportionment purposes. This is why... I think that like the heart of like an agenda that's that's actually like you know a commitment like a general liberation agenda, but that's also um, about what immigrant freedom means in the present, has to be tied to resident voting. In other words, voting rights for for non citizens. And the reason why is because like voting isn't just about um, the issue of one's participation in the political process and being able to exercise your voice about like issues that are important to you, which is, you know, central to democratic theory. But it's also fundamentally tied to the kind of power that various groups enjoy in society. And the United States, just like any society, is organized through fundamental contradictions between haves and have-nots, those that enjoy racial and economic um, and I, you know, racial, economic, and gender dominance, and those that find themselves subject to various forms <clears throat> of subordination. And the vote is one of the central tools of um, being able to alter like those power disparities. And it's why voting throughout American history has been so central to like radical, like truly radical, like insurgent um, democratic agendas. 
you know, it's hard to imagine right now, but like one of the things that like, you know, Marx and Engels most wanted in Europe in the 19th century was, you know, universal suffrage. Like we don't think of it as like a radical thought, but the thought was it's not just that like the vote means that you can participate in a decision. It's that the vote alters the terms of who has power in the society. And it's precisely why the long story of, you know, white settler ideology has been about systematically attempting to restrict voting rights from those that are viewed as um, outsiders and to provide those to those that are seen as like co-ethnic participants in the, the same project of settlement. And, you know, it was central to Jim Crow to engage in systematic disenfranchisement and then to stay one step ahead of efforts to limit those forms of disenfranchisement. And it's central today um, to the maintenance of various types of racial and economic hierarchy to dilute and, and limit the power of the vote and to do so including through diluting and limiting the power of, of immigrant voting. Your argument is that we once had the settler model that imposed internal equality, which was premised on external subjugation and exclusion, but that the collapse of that model, if I have it right, has left us with the imperial prerogative being applied both externally and internally, which is the worst of all worlds. And I want to ask you what the close by asking you what the alternative is and when crafting that alternative, what we can learn from the history of efforts to universalize American freedom from radical Republicans to the populists to the labor movement and the limits that those efforts confronted? You know, my my vision of emancipation is probably not all that, I mean, it's not all that unique. So I think the goal has to be something like equal and effective freedom for all. And what that means is that everybody has control over the most important decisions that affect their lives. So like decisions, especially about um, the nature of their own work experiences and about like the political society that they're part of. You know, I see um, the way that we get there is through, you know, what sometimes folks called like a prefigurative politics or non-reformist reforms or revolutionary reforms, pressing for a set of social changes that make it increasingly difficult if achieved, like small-scale intermediate social changes that make it increasingly difficult if achieved for the existing social order to reproduce themselves, reproduce itself. In the late 19th century, it was things like the eight-hour day or universal suffrage. Today, I think we can think of like a variety of um, of these kinds of reforms. Everything from a guaranteed job to prison abolition to what I was just describing with um, resident uh, resident voting. And I think the two things that we can take from the past, one is the centrality of immigrant communities to the revitalization of emancipatory and like liberation politics in the U.S. Going all the way back to the Germans that came over after the revolutions in 1848, like those Germans had a central role in abolitionist politics. They formed elements of like the Union Army's um, officer corps that were like really committed to uncompensated abolition and in various ways to like socialist transformation to the late 19th century and the role that new European immigrants 
played in revitalizing the the labor movement and highlighting the continuities between American practices and like and feudal practices on the continent, um, all the way to the present and like the centrality of folks from um, from Mexico and Central America and like Latino immigrants and in showing the linkages between capitalism and empire, and that strikes me as like a key point of contact, which is the importance of taking the lead from um, new <clears throat> immigrant activist bases, understanding their own politics as one that shows that immigration is a place that dissolves the distinction between domestic and foreign, that these distinctions make no sense, and that unless you address networks of capital and empire that operate globally, that you can't actually alter conditions domestically. And then the second thing is avoiding the trap, <laughs> basically, of some of the old elements of the labor movement and of um, progressive reform. And there's a persistent tendency <clears throat> to essentially take like a symptom, which is the the general weakness of like the status of workers, like of various, you know, like white and black, um, white and Mexican, and then use that as a way of saying, well, like the problem is the Mexican worker that's coming across the border rather than, well, no, actually the problem is the structure of capitalism that provides the business elite to profit from the competition between poor workers under a condition in which American power allows capital to move while it places these various kinds of coercive restrictions on labor. And so like the heart of this has to be responding to Trump's emphasis on you know, a racialized politics of um, demonization that blames the poor worker, essentially, by saying no, like, actually, Trump is an embodiment of an oligarchic system that structures opportunities for both, you know, American and non-American workers in ways that are fundamentally unfree. Well, very well put. Aziz Rana, thank you very much. My pleasure. Aziz Rana is a professor of law at Cornell Law School and the author of the book, The Two Faces of American Freedom, and the forthcoming book, Rise of the Constitution. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after remarking that antagonism between English and Irish immigrant workers is the secret of the impotence of the English working class and the secret by which the capitalist class maintains its power— while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week, often twice, sometimes once. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Logan Dreher. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please do find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, take a moment to leave us a nice review. Those reviews help put us in touch with new listeners. What also does that is you telling your friends about the show. Please make propaganda for us. And also do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to help keep this thing up and running strong. Even a few bucks is huge. 